Today's scripture reading comes from Matthew chapter 5, verses 13 through 16. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God endures forever. Well, this summer, our staff uh, will be preaching the word, but we'll also have some guest speakers uh, that are coming, and we think that it's healthy for our church to have a diversity of speakers come uh, and share the word with you and not just our staff. And so it's uh, actually my privilege to really introduce um, Abe today. Uh, some know him as the Asian James Harden because of his beard, um, but I, I think of Abe more as like an Asian Gandalf. Uh, and the reason for that is when you get to know Abe, he is chock full of wisdom and insights. And I really appreciate his uh, wisdom, insights into culture and the church. And um, uh, I wanted to uh, bring him up uh, because we also support uh, the work that he does with City to City. And we wanted you to know a little bit about the work that he does since we support him. So can we give it up for Abe? <laughs> <laughs> All right. Abe, uh, Abe isn't a stranger uh, to our church. But we did want you to know uh, some of the work that he does with City to City. And so, Abe, if you can just talk a little bit about what you do first. Yeah, yeah. So I work uh, primarily with City to City North America, which is an affiliate region of City to City, which is a global organization. What the organization as a whole does is essentially we train church planters in global cities across the world. So. There's something like seven to nine global affiliates basically on every continent. I think we're working in something like 50 global cities. My job is to help, is to be part of the lead team in City to City North America. Uh, so the main thing that I get to do with City to City North America is we do, we're doing training of church planters in six major cities in North America, right now all in the U.S. So it's New York, Miami, Chicago, L.A., the Bay, and Phoenix. So those are our six cities. And what we're doing there is we're working with networks of leaders who are already planting churches that are multi-ethnic and trans-denominational, and we provide curriculum and training support for them. So I was just in L.A., and in L.A., they're looking to multiply the incubator, which is a 10-month program for church planters in cities. They're looking to multiply that into San Diego and then another section near L.A. called Inland Empire. And so they're looking to multiply. So we're seeing that kind of work happening in all the six cities that we're working in. I think this past year, we trained something like 307 church planters in these six cities. Wow. And as we resource these six cities, we're eventually envisioning a future where these six cities become hubs, learning hubs for regional cities nearby. And we would love to see God start a movement of urban church planting that's multi-ethnic and trans-denominational, centered on the gospel, engaged in local issues of justice and mercy, uh, all in a holistic kind of a way. And so we're really excited about that. The other thing that I get to do is I get to take the leaders that we're working with in these six cities, and we're starting to gather them together periodically throughout the year, and we're ultimately building towards a national fellowship. Uh, the first one we'll be hosting is going to be in Miami in January, which we figured is not a hard sell. Come meet us in Miami in January. And uh, our hope is that actually, as we gather what is a majority-minority group, so I want to say it's something like three-quarters minorities, 
Uh, we're hoping that actually this kind of becomes something like a new center of gravity in American evangelicalism that has urban sensibilities, uh, that centers the experience of uh, people of color throughout, and that can provide a fresh voice into a lot of the challenges that I think the American church is facing today. Uh, so that to me is one of the most rewarding things that I get to do, is I get to facilitate these gatherings. And there are some incredible leaders. I always tell people, you know, when you read the headlines around evangelicalism, and Christianity America today, there's a lot to genuinely be discouraged about. And some of you might even be here at church today and you're really discouraged what's going on or you've been questioning your faith or just really wrestling through a bunch of things. And if all you're doing is reading the headlines, like 100% justified uh, the way that you're feeling. But my, the, what I get to do in my job is I get to get on the street with some of these leaders and what God is doing in the streets of these cities uh, is mind-blowing. So I am profoundly encouraged, despite everything that we're reading that's true in the papers or whatever. On the street, there are amazing leaders doing amazing local work that just will never catch the attention of any news media outlet. But they, there's lives being transformed at the local level, and my privilege is to get to be a part of that, support and encourage and accelerate some of that. So, sorry, a little long answer. No, but, no, that yeah. was great. Um, and you started, I think, two and a half years ago or two yeah. years ago? It'll, yeah, almost three years now. Okay. Yeah, yeah. What, what made you pivot from um, where you were at to this new role today? Yeah, you know, um, if you look at the statistics in the U.S., there's a lot of demographic changes that we're right in the middle of. So we've seen a ton of changes in the last, let's call it, 10 years. So when I think about the future of the church in America, uh, there are three key pieces of, the, uh, of that that the demographics are clearly pointing to. So the first is that the future of the church in America is urban. Uh, secondly, it is multi-ethnic. And then thirdly, it is foreign-born. So very quick, some statistics. Uh, in 1950, 51% of the U.S. lived in an urban center. In 2020, that number became 80%. By 2050, even post-COVID, we're probably looking at 89% of American urban center. Urban center in this study was defined as 200,000 people or more. That's almost nine out of 10 Americans will be living in an urban center. If the church doesn't figure out how to do urban ministry well, we're gonna be unable to reach 90% of our nation, so it's urban. Uh, secondly, it's also multi-ethnic. By 2050, uh, for the first time, the U.S. will become a majority-minority nation. So 47%. By 2050, 40% of America will be white Americans, 53% uh, Americans of color. Uh, as we think about the future, learning how to do multi-ethnic ministry, uh, centering the voices of multi-ethnic leaders of various contexts is going to be a crucial skill that we have to develop. Uh, and so that's right on, on uh, we're right on the cusp of that. During that time between now and 2050, Latino Americans and Asian Americans will nearly triple in real numbers. Uh, and that will almost double our percentage uh, in the, uh, of representation in the US. So crucially important work, uh, has to be multi-ethnic. And then the third piece is that uh, more and more of America is foreign born. So between now and 2050, uh, the the um, population in America, sorry, from 2005 to 2050, the population in America will grow by something like 140 million people. 82% of that 140 million person growth will be foreign born or the, domestic, or the descendants of immigrants, 82% of that. And so the vast majority of the growth that's happening in America, and this is just demographic trends in America. If you look at the church, the church is even more uh, driven by minority cultures, foreign-born immigrants, and that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. 
All those statistics to say one of the main reasons why I pivoted into this work is I wanted to give the next 10, 20 years of my life to investing in leaders that would be the future of gospel movements in America. And so that meant urban centers across the U.S. It meant multi-ethnic leadership, being Korean-American, but also recognizing as Korean-Americans to be connected with our African-American brothers and sisters, Latino-American brothers and sisters, that there's something that comes out of the whole that is greater than the sum of its part. And then thirdly, finding a place for, for people like many of you and me, uh, the descendants of foreign-born or, or immigrants ourselves, that there's a crucial role that God has placed us in in this time and place in the U.S. to provide leadership and be a voice for the future. Uh, so in many respects, I think this is our time. Uh, again, vast majority here Asian-American. I think there's a crucially important role that Asian-Americans have to play in this time and place. And so my desire was to try to step into that um, and just felt more and more of a heart to see more of that church planting in these diverse contexts uh, with these kind of statistics in mind. Yeah, just two things to wrap up. Uh, nine years ago, uh, Exilic was also a church plant. And if you're unfamiliar with the word plant, that simply just means startup. Uh, nine years ago, we were a startup, and I wish we had the resources that Abe is providing uh, now to a lot of um, church startups or church plants. And so we want to be a church that not only supports uh, church plants in our city, but across our country, especially for people of color. And the second thing I would say is uh, right now people are moving into the city faster than churches are moving into the city. And so we need to encourage more churches to also move into the cities and not leave the cities. And so another reason why we wanted to support the work of Abe and City to City. Let me pray for us. I wish we could talk about this more, but we do want to open up the scriptures as well. So let's pray. Uh, God, thank you uh, for really just um, Abe's heart, uh, not only for his particular local church, but the church, the global church, uh, the church in America. And the face of the church is also changing dramatically, and we need to be prepared for what that future looks like, and we need to do the best that we can to train future leaders and to have a pipeline where uh, people are uh, feel equipped uh, to do this difficult but necessary and joyful work. And to that end, we continually pray that you be with Abe as he travels throughout the country. Uh, as he does great work here uh, in the city as well. And we're grateful for the word this morning. In your name I pray. Amen. All right. We'll pass it off right. to you, brother. Also want to say thank you for your support. Uh, a lot of what we do with CDC North America is dependent on uh, a lot of generosity and gifts. And so um, Exilic has been just a very faithful and generous supporter, uh, if you didn't know. So really, really appreciate this congregation's support and the work that I get to do. Uh, but today we're going to be looking at Matthew chapter 5, which uh, if you grew up in the church is a fairly familiar text. But here's why this is a text that I wanted to choose for us today. As I speak at different churches and as I travel a little bit more now in my stage in ministry, uh, I've become convinced that one of the most urgent messages that the church in America needs to hear today is a very simple message, which is, let's get back to Jesus. So there's lots in the church today that we can find ourselves distracted about. There's lots of things that are causing divisions. There's lots of things that people are disagreeing on. And we can get caught up in all of these other activities, which can have some warrant to them for sure. 
But as I've seen all these different churches and as I've observed kind of like the fracturing of the church in America today, I think one of the most urgent messages that the church in America needs to hear is simply to get back to Jesus. So if you go back to the polls, Christianity is rapidly in decline. Um, There are fewer and fewer people as you go down the generations who are identifying as Christians. Uh, Many people, especially those who are younger, are very quickly leaving the church. And if you were to ask any one of those folks who are maybe leaving the church or, or disillusioned, if you were to ask them, what is the reason for that exodus? And my guess is that if you were to ask that question, one of the first three reasons that you'd get from almost everybody is one word, and it's hypocrisy. Uh, it's Christians who've gotten away from Jesus. So I was talking with a friend of mine. And we were just talking about how things, even in New York City, have changed, has, has changed. You know, so there was a long time in New York City, and I was a pastor at Redeemer for many, many years, where um, the main reason that people weren't Christians was because they were asking the question, is, is Christianity even true? Is there truth to Christianity? So people are asking all these rational questions about you know, the, the defensibility of the Christian faith. And as I was talking with my, a friend of mine, she was saying, you know, when I talk to my friends today in New York, Nobody's asking if Christianity is true because no one's even thinking about Christianity. If anybody, if any of my friends are thinking about Christianity, they're not asking if it's true. They're not even asking, is Christianity a good thing for society? She says, my friends are asking, is Christianity safe? Is church a safe place for vulnerable people to appear? to attend. And that question to me captures a crucial moment in our culture today. Is Christianity even safe? And for me, I say, if we could get back to Jesus, if the lives that were being produced in the church looked more like the life that Jesus lived, what do we see in Jesus? The most vulnerable were the ones who were most drawn to him. The most powerful, the most moral, the most religious, the most established, the most successful were the ones who were most oftentimes offended by him. And yet somehow the church in America today has gotten that entirely upside down. The most vulnerable are asking, is it even safe to engage in this Christian faith? And maybe some of the most powerful and the most successful and the most wealthy are saying, well, of course this is a Christian nation. Somehow we've turned that entire thing upside down. But if you look at the early church, I find it beautiful and compelling, and for me, it's an encouraging and inspiring vision to get back to. If you look at the early church in a context of persecution, persecution, they were very much on the margins of the Roman Empire. There was an attractiveness and a power to that early fellowship. It's what Dr. Martin Luther King, he used a phrase, there was a gospel glow to that early church. And so let me read to you just a quick excerpt. This is from, and a famous piece from a, a little letter called the Epistle to Diognetus. Uh, and it says this, and there'll be like a slide that, that comes up. Yeah, a, a, little, a couple of sentences before I get into what's listed on the screen there. But it says this, Christians are not distinguished from the rest of humanity by country, language, or custom. For nowhere do they live in cities of their own, nor do they speak some unusual dialect. They follow the local customs and dress and food and other aspects of life. At the same time, they demonstrate the remarkable and, ad- remarkable and admittedly unusual character of their own citizenship. Christians participate in everything as citizens and yet endure everything as foreigners. They marry like everyone else and have children, but they do not expose their offerings, which is, means to leave them out to die. Uh, they share their food, but not their wives. 
They live on earth, but their citizenship is in heaven. They obey the established laws. Indeed, in their lives, they transcend the laws. They are poor, yet they make many rich. They are cursed, and yet they bless. They are insulted, and yet they offer respect. That there was a gospel glow to the early church that made them attractive. And for me, the most crucial thing right now is can the church today, can exilic church today recover the gospel glow that we see in that early church? What would it look like for Christians in our day to be known for this? And not for our politics, not for our culture wars, but to be known for this. And so that's what Jesus' call is about, and I think, in this section where he talk, calls, us, calls Christians to be salt and light. So let's look at this uh, passage and his call to all of his followers to be salt and light. There are three things that I want us to consider. This, this command to be salt and light, I want to look at first what it assumes, secondly what it means, and then thirdly what it requires. Okay, so first, let's look at what it assumes. So when Jesus says, you're the salt of the earth, you're the light of the world, he's assuming something about Christians that is maybe so obvious that we can very, very easily skip by it. So that command to be salt of the earth, be the light of the world, the assumption that Jesus makes there is that for both the salt and the light to serve its purpose, they need to be different from the surrounding environment that they're placed in. The assumption that Jesus is making is that Christians are going to be different from the world. If salt is not different from the environment that it's placed in, it, doesn't, it loses its saltiness. If light is not different from the darkness that it's sent into, it loses its entire sense of purpose. And so John Stott, and I have a quote here, puts it this way. He says, Jesus is teaching here is built on the assumption that Christians are different, and it issues a call to Christians to be different. And then he says this, probably the greatest tragedy of the church throughout its long and checkered history has been its constant tendency to conform to the prevailing culture instead of developing a Christian counterculture. That constant tendency to conform to the prevailing culture. In order for salt to be salt, it must be different. In order for light to be light, it must be different. And actually, if you look at verse 13 in the text here, what's the greatest danger that salt faces? And actually, you can almost interpret this as a warning. Maybe not a threat, but at least a warning that Jesus issues those who would, uh, say that they follow him. What does it say in verse 13? You are the salt of the earth. If the salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. What Jesus is saying is that the greatest danger for one of his disciples is the temptation to downplay, avoid, or deny how different they're called to be. That a refusal or a fearfulness to be different from those around you is an utter abdication of the calling that Jesus has placed on the Christian's life. If the salt loses its saltiness, it is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and to be trampled under people's feet. If a lamp, if a lamp is lit, and because it's afraid of being disruptive to the darkness, hides itself under a bowl, 
it completely misses the entire point of being sent as light. The greatest danger is the danger to downplay that difference. Now, here's the thing. The worst thing that you can see in people are people who are just different, trying to be different for the sake of being different. So those folks are like, I, I just don't have time or energy to hang out with people who are just different for the sake of being different. That's not the call that Jesus is giving here. What Jesus is saying, the best and most authentic kind of difference is someone who is radically different from the world around them. Why? Not because they're different for the sake of being different. They're different. Why? Because they're being conformed to an alternate standard that is far more compelling and attractive. And so Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., he has a great sermon on this theme. He's preaching on Romans chapter 12. And essentially what he says is that Christians in our day and age, what the world needs today, and he was, of course, speaking back in the 1950s and 60s, but what he's saying is that what the world needs today is the world needs a group of Christians who are deciding to be creatively maladjusted to the world around them. And so ultimately, for Dr. King in that sermon, he issues this call for Christians to be the ultimate nonconformists in a very conforming world. So let me read this section from his uh, sermon. It's called, it's called Transform Nonconformance, based on Romans 12. He said, Our world needs a dedicated circle of transformed nonconformists. Our planet teeters on the brink of annihilation. Dangerous passions of pride, hatred, and selfishness are enthroned in our lives, and men do reverence before false gods of nationalism and materialism. And here's a quote for you. The saving of our world from pending doom will come, not through the complacent adjustment of the conforming majority, but through the creative maladjustment of a non-conforming minority. We must make a choice. Will we continue to march to the drumbeat of conformity and respectability, or will we, listening to the beat of a more distant drum, move to its echoing sounds? Will we, risking criticism and abuse, march to the soul-saving music of eternity? The saving of our world will not come through the complacent adjustment of a conforming majority, but through the creative maladjustment of a non-conforming minority. Will we beat, will we march to the drumbeat of a far more distant drum? And for me, it's a profoundly compelling challenge. Are our hearts our minds, our lives, our feet, so tuned into the cadence and the drumbeat and the rhythms of the kingdom of God that we find ourselves dancing in the streets to a radically different tune. Is the song of Jesus, the song of his kingdom, the perfection of the shalom that he offers, is that song so real to us? Is it so deep into our bones that no matter what song the world is playing, it's the song of the kingdom of heaven that guides the cadence of our lives. Do we hear that song? So I don't know about you, but uh, my family, whenever we get the chance, usually on special occasions, we love to go karaoke together as a family. So we go to Nora Bang right on, you know, Cape Town, 36th Street, 35th Street, and that sort of thing. 
One of the things about going karaoke is that I uh, have become notorious in my family for, well, a couple of things. One, I'm notoriously mediocre at karaoke. So I always tell, if you go to know about, if you've never done karaoke before, you need one person who's average and enthusiastic at the same time. So that's me, okay? Just breaks the ice. So if I go, like, oh, if he could do that, I could totally follow that act, right? So that's me. So that's one. But the second thing that I'm notorious about when it comes to karaoke in my family is I am notorious about believing that I really know this song and that I will crush it when I sing it at karaoke. So one example is recently my favorite song, like this is the one song I'm like, this song... I'm, this is my jam. Like, when this comes on, this, this speaks to my soul. Like, it gets my soul moving. And when we go to karaoke, this is the first song I'm going to sing because this is my jam. You know what song that is? It's a song, Despacito. <laughs> so, a couple things about Despacito if you don't know that song. One, it's in Spanish. <laughs> I don't speak Spanish. And then two, after I sang it for the first time, sang in quotes, for the first time, my daughter, who's a teenager, she said, Dad, don't Google the English translation of the lyrics. So I Googled the English translation of the lyrics. And it is not appropriate for a dad to be singing that during family karaoke, like utterly inappropriate. But I would go in there, and I'm like, I know this song. It's my jam. Like, I will crush every word of this song when I get into karaoke, and I realize I don't know that song anywhere nearly as well as I thought I did. Now, here's the point of all of this. Christian, do you know the Word of God so well that no matter what song might be playing through the airwaves of the world, you're crushing that song at karaoke? Do you know God's word so well that its rhythm, its cadence, its vision, its beauty, its calling is what's setting the pace for the rhythm of your life? Is that the rhythm that is setting your feet to dancing in this life? Because I would challenge you, if you're like me, you think you know God's word way better than you actually do. And then when it comes time to dance to a different beat, you're going to actually find yourself sucked into the beat of the world that everybody else is marching to. If you don't know the song of God's kingdom, like it's in your bones, there's no way you crush that at karaoke. There's no way you dance to a different beat. There's no way that your life is the life of a transformed nonconformist. There's no way you know what it looks like to be creatively maladjusted to the world around you. Do you know the word of God? Is it in your bones? There's this great quote that's actually attributed to Frederick Nietzsche of all people. But he said this, he says, those who dance are judged to be mad by those who can't hear the music. Those who dance are judges to be mad by those who can't hear the music. If you can hear the music of the kingdom of God and it sets your life dancing with joy, the world around you will look at it and they say, what kind of life is that? 
You'll be joyfully different. And that's one of the things that we say in our family all the time. Like before we send our kids out in the morning, we do something called praying feet. So we have everybody put their foot in a circle and we say, Lord, guide our feet today. And part of it is trying to get in before we send our kids out to say, we're going to walk differently. We're going to keep in step with the spirit. And so we ask Jesus to guide our feet. But one of the main things, themes that I bring out in that prayer is this, is this call to be joyfully different from the world. Not angrily different, not fearfully different, not self-righteously different, uh, not shamefully or embarrassingly different, but to be joyfully different from the world. Christian, do you know the word of God enough? that you could be this transformed nonconformist. So that's the first point. What it assumes, it assumes that Christians will be different. Let me maybe ask the question this way. If you were to be investigated for evidence that you were a practicing Christian, would there be enough to indict and ultimately convict you? And I'm not talking about church retreat t-shirts. I'm not talking about praise music on your phones. I'm talking about an actual life. If there was an investigation to see if you were an active Christian, would there be enough evidence to convict? Do you know the Word of God? Are you joyfully different? Because this call to be salt and light makes no sense if Christians aren't ready to say we're called to be joyfully different from those around us. So that's the first point. Secondly, we look, first we looked at what this uh, command assumes. Secondly, let's look at what does this mean, this command to be salt and light. And the best way, I think, to go about this is just to understand a little bit about what salt and what light did during Jesus' time. And that will kind of give us some insight as far as what he means when he says to be salt and light. Uh, so first, salt. When Jesus says, you are to be the salt of the earth, what does he mean by that? Now, in ancient times, during Jesus' time, there was no refrigeration. So the very first and most prominent use of salt during Jesus' time was to function as a preservative. And so part of what that means is that to follow Jesus means that the Christian is called to work against social decay everywhere we find it in our culture. So if you can think about all the ways that a culture could go bad, whether it's through immorality or injustice or whatever the case might be, wherever you could see a culture going bad, Jesus is saying you're being sent out to be a preservative, to salt the culture, to preserve the essence or the integrity of a culture. So it was a preservative. Uh, but salt was also used for its healing properties. So it was oftentimes used as an antiseptic. And it would oftentimes accelerate healing. So the Christian is not only meant to go out and be a preservative, but a Christian is also to go to places, those places of social decay and be active agents of healing, active agents of restoration. Uh, but third, salt also, preservative, it was also an act, agent of healing. But third, salt obviously was also used for seasoning. Now, here's what's interesting to me about salt. Uh, I love hot sauce, and I love hot sauces of all kinds. So, right, I'm Korean, so obviously I love gochujang, but I also love sriracha, I also love tapatio, I also love uh, um, what's called Tabasco, I also love Texas Pete. Like, it doesn't matter what the hot sauce is, I love hot sauces. But the thing about hot sauce is what hot sauce does is that it takes its own flavor and it covers over a multitude of culinary sins, right? So whatever it is, if it's like, eh, this ain't so great, but if you just give me some Tabasco, it'll be fine, right? I could eat that. So it covers over the flavor. Now, the thing about salt, salt is different, though, isn't it? 
Because if you put too much on there, it kind of destroys. What does salt do? Salt doesn't cover over the flavor that's already there. Salt draws out the essence of the best parts of the flavor that are there. So why do you salt a steak? Although actually, this is, I might not be forgiven for this, but I actually really like A1 sauce on my steaks. But we'll pretend I didn't say that. The reason you salt a steak is to draw out all the flavors of the meat. And when Jesus says to Christians, you are the salt of the earth, yes, you're preservative, yes, you're healing, but Christians are also meant to be the kinds of agents that draw out all the good that's already in the culture. That this is the comprehensive call that Jesus is calling us, that when we're called to be joyfully different from the world, we're to be different so that we can preserve, so we can heal, but also that we can draw out the best in our neighbors, in our city, in our workplace, in our industries to draw out the goodness that's already there. So that's what Jesus means when he says you're called to be salt. What about the metaphor of light? Throughout the Bible, uh, light is always, almost always a symbol for truth. Now, when you think about light, light does two things, okay? So light does two things. One, light obviously illuminates, right? So it brings truth. It brings insight. It sheds light into the darkness, it brings out truth so that people can make sense of everything else, right? So part of what it means to be the light of the earth is to bring the truth of the gospel to bear. But there's a second thing that light does that we can oftentimes easily forget. Light not only illuminates, but light also brings warmth. Light draws people in, that there's an attractiveness to that. That to follow Jesus means not just bringing to bear the truth of the gospel, yes, illuminate, bring light into darkness, but it also means to bring warmth, to embody the attractiveness, the hopefulness, the joy, the humility of who Jesus is. So when I was growing up, we grew up, you know, I kind of came from a fairly typical immigrant family, so my parents immigrated in the mid-70s. Uh, and I was born here in the U.S., but part of what it meant was that, you know, like f- family vacations was like not a thing for us. So my kids grew up, and every summer we do family vacations, and so if we were to skip a summer with family vacations, there would be outrage and uprising, right? My kids would be like, Dude, how could we not? What is this? How could you? How dare you? But growing up, like we went on summer vacations like, I don't know, once every five years, I feel like. And whenever we went on summer vacations, uh, we would always go to the same hotel every time. And so this hotel for me became associated with like luxury and like, man, this is the life. Like, wow, we totally made it. So the same hotel we went to every time we went on vacation uh, was Motel 6. (laughs) And Motel 6 to me meant there's cable, there's air conditioning, there's a pool. Like, we are totally living life when we went to Motel 6. Now, I don't know if you remember this, but many, many years ago, there was an ad campaign that came out for Motel 6. And it was, you know, Motel 6, whatever. And then the tagline for Motel 6, I don't know if anybody remembers this. They said, Motel 6, we'll leave the light on for you. And I was like, they're leaving the light on for me. Like, that's for me. But I love that metaphor because I think it captures what Jesus means when he says you're the light of the earth. Because what does it mean to leave the light on for someone? You're leaving a light on to guide their path so they can make it home. And you're also offering them the welcome to say, we've been waiting for you. We've been looking for you. And when Jesus says to the Christian, you're the light of the earth, I think we're meant to be doing both, to guide folks on their journey back home to God, to find forgiveness, 
But Christians are also supposed to be the ones that said, but we've left this light on for, we've been waiting for you. We've been waiting to embrace you. We've got food ready on the table and it's getting cold. We're glad that you're finally here. It's both illumination and warmth. There's an attractiveness. Now here's what I love about who Jesus is speaking to here, Matthew 5, because it must have sounded absurd to that original audience, because that original audience was a group of small, marginal, inconsequential, largely poor and working class. These were not the impressive people in the Roman Empire. These were not the power brokers, the influencers, the elite, the up and coming. These were not were the upwardly mobile. This is a small movement of marginal people on the far outskirts of an occupied territory that's taken over by the greatest empire that the world has ever seen. And Jesus tells that group, you are the salt of the earth. You're the light of the world. That where the kingdom of God works is so often the places that the kingdoms of this earth overlook. And he tells this marginal group that says, what could we do? We're nobody. We're nothing. We're small. We're insignificant. We're inconsequential. And Jesus says, you're the light of the earth. You're the salt of the world. Or light of the wor- salt of the earth, light of the world. So I want to say this. If you're here and you're feeling inconsequential, you're asking, like, what difference could one person possibly make in my workplace, in my neighborhood, and what I do? I want to tell you, you're exactly the person that Jesus is talking to. Yes, you. You're the salt of the earth. You're the light of the world. And the thing about salt is this. One grain of salt is not going to do anything. But you send out salt, and you scatter salt out onto that stake, and it makes all the difference in the world. So that's what he means. So first, we looked at what he assumes. Secondly, we looked at what he means. Third, and finally, what does it require? What do we need if we're going to be the salt of the earth and the light of the world. Well, let's think a little bit about how salt does its work. So in order for salt to do its work, salt has to get out and then get in, doesn't it? So in my home, next to our uh, oven, we have a little salt container. It's just this little ceramic bowl. It's got a little top. If I were to take that ceramic bowl and keep the salt in there and did all my cooking, that salt wouldn't do the work. If I were to take that ceramic bowl and put it on top of my steak and try to get the steak to be salted, that wouldn't work. What do I need to do? I need to take the salt out of the ceramic bowl and I need to sprinkle that all over the food until the salt essentially loses itself in the meat that's being cooked. That salt, in order to do its work, needs to get out of its ceramic bowl and it needs to get in to the place where it's being sent. And our gatherings like this are crucial as we gather together, but we can oftentimes get so stuck in the ceramic bowl that we forget that the purpose for our gathering actually is to be sent back out. That we could sit in a ceramic bowl and say, well, here at least I'm not going to get those gross meat juices all over me. You know, at least here I'm going to stay safe. I'm not going to get lost. I'm not going to get dissolved into some other fluids that's kind of like you. Here at least, all of us salt, we stay together and we're nice and clean and it's great. Like we're all... But the purpose of salt is to get out so that you can get in. That you can't stay in the safety of that bowl. You can't huddle together. You can't protect the purity of your own saltiness. That light can't be, concern, can't be so concerned about being contaminated by darkness that it doesn't disrupt that darkness. It needs to be sent out. It needs to emanate, to diffuse 
See, both salt and light need to place themselves right in the middle of darkness and decay and be ready to expend itself completely to bring about a greater good. And so how do you do that? How do, you, how do you become the kind of person that can get out and expend yourself? How can you become the kind of person that doesn't lose your sense of identity, that doesn't lose your saltiness, that doesn't fall into temptation, that doesn't, how do you become that kind of a person? What do we need if we're going to be salt and light? And I think this is a crucial question. And for me, I got a really beautiful little insight into this. I was watching uh, Brian Stevenson. He had a TED Talk. Uh, he's the founder of EGI, EJI Equal Justice Initiative. He's also the start, founder of the uh, lynching memorial down in, I think it's Mobile, Alabama. Uh, he's a criminal rights lawyer. And in his TED Talk, he talks about how he first started to move in this journey towards getting close, getting proximate with people who were on death row. And he tells a story about when he was growing up, and he had a lot of cousins and brothers and sisters, and he had like a grandmother... And every time he would come over, his grandmother would grab him and give him just this big bear hug, like suffocating bear hug, and wouldn't let him go, hold him for a minute or two. And he was like, all right, Grandma, can you let me? Okay. And she would let go, and then 15, 20 minutes later, she'd walk over and say, Brian, do you still feel me hugging you? And if he said no, she would grab him and hold on to him again for another couple of minutes, and then finally let him go. And she'd come back another half hour and say, Brian, do you still me hugging you? And by the time, he'd say, yeah, 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 I still feel you. I still feel you. And he describes how his relationship with the grandmother and those deep embrace and this question, do you still feel me hugging you? How that deeply formed a sense of identity. That he is someone who's deeply beloved. That no matter what he does, there's a source of in unshakable love that's his. And it was also the kind of thing that made him say, when I work with folks in the criminal justice system, it's not enough for me to work with them from far away. I gotta get proximate. I've gotta get close. My clients should be able to hear me say, Do you still feel me hugging you? To get close. And I think for Brian Stevenson, the way that he's able to get into the place of decay and darkness and not lose his distinctiveness, to get close enough to hug, it's because he's experienced an embrace. Uh, an embrace that he can't shake, that he still feels no matter where he goes, no matter who he's with. A grounding love that he knows is far greater than himself. Christian, the only way you can go out and be salt and light is if you hear Jesus coming to you and say, do you still feel me hugging you? Do you still feel me close? Do you, have you received a source of love that is infinite and eternal and unchanging? So that no matter where you go, no matter where you are, no matter who you're with, can you still feel me hugging you? Do you know his presence when you realize that Jesus is the only one who's a true light of the world? But his life was extinguished on the cross because of your sin. Do you feel the light of the world hugging you until he gets snuffed out? When you realize that Jesus is the only one who's the true salt of the earth, and Jesus on the ground gets trampled underfoot like he's worth nothing, and he was trampled in your place, do you feel Jesus, the true salt of the earth, hugging you where, no matter where you go? Christian, have you experienced Jesus in this way? Do you realize that he's done that for you?
Do you know his love so deeply enough that his love is what's setting your life dancing, marching to a distant beat? Do you know Jesus? Can you taste his love? Do you experience it wherever you go? Because if you do, then of course you and I, what else would we do but be salt and light wherever we go? So Exilic Church, let's do that together. None of us can do it alone. Let's go out, be salt and light here in New York City for the glory of God and for the good of our neighbor. Let's pray. Lord, right now, some of us just need to feel you hugging us. And Lord, we pray that even as we break the bread and take the cup, we would know that this is a meal of embrace. So wherever we feel in our own woundedness, precisely in the places of our darkness and decay, to experience Jesus hugging and healing us there, grant this to us right now. Lord, for others of us, we need to hear this challenge to be joyfully different, to be conformed, to be so tuned in to the drumbeat of heaven that we dance to a different beat. But Father, wherever we are, and some of us are here and we don't even know what we believe about Jesus Lord, we pray that as the church gets back to Jesus, that our friends and neighbors, those that we love, might be able to cut through all the noise around the church in America and instead meet this Jesus who embraces us precisely in the place of our darkness and decay. Lord, I pray that our friends and those friends who are here with us today would meet this Jesus as well. So we pray that you'd meet us now around the table in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, Abe.